Welcome to Swift Unscripted. These Swift podcasts give you, the listener, the opportunity to hear the inside story and be part of the conversation about all means all with leaders in the field of inclusive, equity-based education and school-wide transformation. I'm Mary Shu. I'm a member of SWIFT, and here we are in Kansas City at the SWIFT National Leadership Consortium, recording a live podcast with our guest, Kimberly Breen. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi, thank you. (laughs) Kimberly is a leader in the field of multi-tiered systems of support, positive behavior interventions and supports, and parent engagement. She's currently the Regional Facilitator Director for SWIFT. So, Kimberly, tell us the story about how you got connected to this important work. Sure, thank you. So probably could comment on this in several ways, but I'll start by sharing. I have three older sisters. They're all uh, between nine and 12 years older than me. So I became an aunt at a very young age. And uh, at a very young age, one of my sisters uh, had a challenge her. The school contacted her about her daughter having problems in school. And so I was you know, maybe 18, 19, and my sister was nervous about this school meeting and asked me to come along with her. And the school meeting was quite uncomfortable. It was very tense. You know, as a younger person, I just felt the tension in the room. Yeah, I can imagine And the my feeling. sister seemed incredibly nervous. And it, I, I have a pretty strong memory of the, the visceral memory of, you know, it shouldn't have felt. I remember thinking, why did this feel so uncomfortable? Why was, did it feel like someone had done something wrong? And in particular, I think my sister felt like she was sort of in trouble in some way. And so we get into the meeting, and I think uh, very well-intentioned school staff started to proceed to talk about the challenges they were facing with my niece. And um, it started to become pretty clear that it, it seemed like maybe my niece just needed glasses. And, you know, this seems like a really, uh, you know, these days I think this kind of thing happens less often, right? So now we're talking about, you know, um, quite a while ago. But so in the conversation, I was uh, feeling probably more empowered than my sister because I knew she had kind of invited me to help support her. So I spoke up a little bit more uh, than my sister did at the time and kind of it helped to lead the conversation towards well shouldn't we just get her tested for glasses before we do anything else and they were describing her as kind of zoning off and not paying attention not taking her you know writing down her homework assignments you know there's a sort of list of behavior that sounded a little non-compliant sounded you know um like disengaged and so, yes, lo and behold, she got glasses, and she went on to have a very nice school career and go on to college, and my niece is doing very well. So that experience really stuck with me uh, throughout my course of pursuing my own education and deciding what I wanted to do when I went to school. And uh, so that's you'll kind of hear in my work around family engagement and supports, I try to really normalize the conversation we are all family members. We all either have children or we're an aunt or an uncle or we're a neighbor or we have friends whose children we love and we all want what's best for them. And I don't think it needs to be so complicated as we make right, it sometimes. Right, right, right. That's a great story. What did you um, study in school? So I ended up uh, becoming a school counselor. It was my first, uh, I have a degree in school counseling and also community counseling. And then I went back to school also uh, to have my degree in school psychology. 
it's all sort of related to yeah. school yeah. improvement, yeah, yeah. kind of more in the social um, realm of it. So before working um, with SWIFT, you were doing a lot of work in the field of positive behavior intervention and supports. Yes. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. So I was very grateful to have a unique opportunity that immediately following my first graduate school experience, I uh, took a position on Molokai, Hawaii. I, so I'm from New York. I was living in Albany, <laughs> New York at the time. And uh, Hawaii, uh, the state of Hawaii was recruiting. They were doing interviews and I kind of went just for fun to have the interview experience. And I was offered a position on Molokai, which is a very unique place. So very small island, very rural, um, a very native um, in terms of the, the culture, the people, you know, more Hawaiians, more native Hawaiians live there mm-hmm. um, than a lot of the rest of Hawaii right now. And so I wanted that experience because living in New York, I could have had an urban experience anywhere there and I wanted something different. And I think, so So part of how this relates to positive behavior supports is that I went there to, to be the school counselor at Mount Aloha Elementary, very small school, uh, supporting students who often walk to school barefoot. And um, Well, it's Hawaii. Yeah, right, exactly. You can. Yeah, you can do that. Um, and so that the state at the time had just started a statewide initiative because of a, a lawsuit um, to do positive behavior sports statewide. And Dr. George Sugai from the National mm-hmm. Center of PBIS uh, was the trainer. So within like weeks of me arriving on the island, I was um, being sent to large professional development events and learning how to be the coach. I was designated, I think it's one of those things like the last person in the room gets mm-hmm. volunteered. And so I was the positive behavior sport coach and learned about the process and immediately started implementing. Um, we weren't, you know, we were doing three tiers, but sort of jumping around. I, I first fell in love with functional behavior assessment and behavior intervention planning because it really, uh, it gave a way to organize the story for children. Right, right. And so you have adults and people sort of complaining and struggling with what to do with a student, and it gave a way to organize that information in a way that was much more usable and actionable. Yeah, I can imagine you you were able to tie that directly back to your niece. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And other children who I loved, right. oh, my other nieces and nephews who all had a variety of different strengths and needs, as we all do, and watching schools uh, respond or struggle to respond to those needs, um, including, I think, I, I, I always, I hope that adults uh, more often can remember their own childhood and their own experiences and what they observed as liking or not liking in school. There's very little in this world that I think we need to just accept and move on from. I think if we see room for improvement in something, we need to raise our voice and try to help make it better, if not for ourselves, and at least for the people coming up after us. Yeah, for sure. Um, so what, what does all mean all to you? The, sure. The taglines of SWIFT? Yeah, which I love. I, it's so powerful. I, I love the work of SWIFT. I'm, I'm so excited to be a fairly new member of the SWIFT team, and I've been a fan of the SWIFT work for quite a while. Um, so there's lots of ways we can comment on this, but I'll say all means all children and adults who live in the school's service area. 
So the reason I'm saying it that way is I think we all agree that when we say all means all, people are forgotten. And it's it's unfor- and, and everyone forgets different groups, but it tends to Give me to some be- examples. Like when you say people are forgotten, Absolutely. you're talking about children, families, all about- of the above. Right. So, I'll, so I'll give a couple examples. One of the, the most common groups that's forgotten are children who are in alternative school settings. So you're sitting down with the, with the neighborhood school and you say, who are all your students? And they give you the numbers and they tell you where they're all sitting. And then you say, so do you have anyone in an alternative school? Oh, yeah, yes, we do. We have, I forgot, we have 10 students who we, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you have any students in residential placement? Oh, you mean them? Yes, well, we have two or three of those youth who have been sent to residential placement. Mm-hmm. How about any students whose parents have decided to homeschool? Maybe in part because of feelings of problems around equity or um needs being met, et cetera. And so I think all means all does require some probing, especially if we're talking about the data, you know, really finding mm-hmm. all mm-hmm. of the students. And then the reason I say children and adults is because, um, you know, we schools often talk about not having enough resources to do everything that needs to be done. And the good news is schools don't need to do it all. There are other adults, like I was the aunt who cared about my niece. There are other adults who care about these children who can help in a number of ways, help them build social skills and um, love, learn to love reading and learn to love learning. And, and so there are children who have loved ones in jail who are often forgotten about. There are children who have grandparents or aunts who... Are, don't maybe feel included if we just say parents. Mm-hmm. So we talk a lot about family, family. engagement. Yes, yes. Uh, you know, and I realized in our opening, I said parent engagement, and I and then I, I wanted to like catch myself, but I didn't. But I was thinking, yes, there, and I just did it when I know we mean families yes. and not just parents. So. Well, and what a good example of just like all means all. You know, you know it, you know all, but we just sometimes just our language happens yeah. to flow into a way that um, it requires a little further. So I think most people, a lot of groups are still saying parent. Right, you know? right. And they still mean parent because when notices are sent out from schools, you know, are we really sending notices to all community members or are we only sending notices to adults who have a child in the school system? Enrolled in the school system. Yeah, Correct. but there yeah. are a lot of retired citizens who care a lot about the school system and who might even come to events and help out, even though they don't have children in that school. Uh, there are police officers. There are you know community providers. There's business owners who care a lot about how effective the schools are. And I think we can include them more than we do. Yes, yes. Wow. That is like a great definition of all means all, Kimberly. Thank you for that. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit more about family engagement um, because it is, it's a high priority within SWIFT. It's one of the SWIFT domains and features one of our prominent features. So can you describe some um, models where family engagement, you've seen it particularly effective, uh, where families are truly included as decision makers, as stakeholders? Sure. So what I'll, what I'll choose to focus on here is sort of my, my recommendation that I, that I hope folks can, 
can consider and, and move with. And like like all of us, I'm I'm influenced by so many different researchers and, and authors in this field. And so there's a lot of good work out there about what we should be doing for family and partnerships. Um, so people often talk about Joyce Epstein's work. Um, Mimi Heineman um, has some great work and is still doing some current real um, real life work with real families and how to make this meaningful for folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Lucician's another one who um, just has some great material out there for to educate families and school folks and leaders so that we're informing um, all all parties. So it's not just about schools reaching out to families, and it's not just about families reaching out to schools. Right, we want to equally right. inform. So the the first thing that that myself and many recommend is to have to treat families as decision makers. Exactly what you just said, to treat families as decision makers, not just passive relationships where we send information home, not just volunteer opportunities where they can come in and do something we've laid out already, and they are just the actor in that, Uh, but to actually treat them as stakeholders who may care more than anyone else about these decisions because they may have two, three, or four children going through this school system. Uh, Families are probably more impacted by the decisions schools make than anyone who's employed to work in the school system. So we want to respect the voices of all. We want to respect the superintendent's voice and the principal's voice and the teacher's voice and the paraprofessional's voice and the family's voice. And I I don't know that anyone could make an argument for any one of those voices being more important mm-hmm. than the other. And yet I often see the opinion or decisions of certain folks in that continuum being treated as more important. And I think the sort of irony is that we're often looking at superintendents who leave within a year or two years and families who are there for 18. And so if you're what a family an important member, point. You know, if you're, I think, um, so, so in terms of a model to consider, I would say uh, something like two plus two times all. And so two plus two, meaning two or more family members and two or more community members on all decision-making teams. So why two family members? Because one of them often can't show up and you only (laughs) invite one person to your party and they can't make it, you don't have a party, right? So you wanna consider two or more family members on all decision-making teams. The other reason is that it's very hard, as I described my sister being nervous in that meeting many years ago, it's very hard to be the only family member at a, at a team meeting with all professionals. And even if you're a professional family member, but your profession is in the sciences, you're, you, know, you work um, for another community agency, if you don't work for that school, it can be hard to have your voice be heard in the meeting. And have the confidence that you're going to be listened to. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so you want to consider having two parents, and and it'd be great when those two parents represent different parts of the school community, whether it's because one has a child that has higher level needs and one has a child that doesn't. One represents one neighborhood and one represents another. We see a lot of school districts where the neighborhoods are very different, and so we can't assume that the needs or strengths are the same across. 
So I'd say two or more family members to be invited to every decision-making team. And then schools won't feel so frustrated if one or two of those family members can't make it. If multiple folks have been invited, you're more likely to get at least one present for most of the meetings. Mm -hmm. Hopefully at least two will typically be there. And I say community members because, as we said, I know many community members who care deeply about the school, and some have more time in some ways than some of our parents. So many of us who have children, we know how much time and energy it takes just to keep them safe and happy and uh, to then add on any other kind of volunteer uh, time is hard. But there may be retired members of the community who care a lot about how children are behaving at the parks, who care a lot about how students are behaving as they walk down the street. And so I think we need to reach out to community members to join teams as well. And I would say folks like police officers, folks like those who work in the public library, business owners, especially those who own businesses right next to the school where all the students go before and after school, they care deeply about this work and they may be able to build it into their routine. So what kinds of strategies have you seen successful for schools reaching out? I mean, I think you are absolutely convincing in your um, promoting the rationale why families and community members are essential to decision-making in schools. But what, you know, what's the recruitment strategy? Right. What are schools doing? So, so I apologize that I tend to be a little provocative in my, in my uh, recommendations. And I think in part because people get bored with the regular <laughs> recommendations. Go ahead. Be provocative. All right. All right. So here's my, my statement is um, right now, anyone listening, can I want you to think of one or more family members who you really do not want on a team. So think of one or two family members who not only do you not want on your PBIS team, but you hope when you pull into the parking lot that you don't see their car and you hope that you know you don't run into them. And I bet as you're thinking of one or more family members who have kind of been hard to work with over the years or the months or the weeks, you're probably thinking of more than one even. There's a very good chance you're thinking of five or six family members. And um, I would say if you can't find anyone else, invite them to join your team. There's a reason you don't want to run into them. There's a reason you don't want them on the teams. And it's probably in part because they have a lot of opinions and they have a voice and they want it to be heard. And just like we can set behavioral expectations for students and we can teach students how to behave under any circumstance, we can set behavioral expectations for adults in meetings. And so any behavior that you think is going to take over your team meeting is not because you give everyone a one-minute time rule for sharing and you agree on a number two voice level so there's no yelling and you agree to use a parking lot and you do all the things that right, we know. Right, right, Meeting protocols yes. to run an efficient and productive and positive and fun yes. meeting. Yes. So I struggle a little bit. I've helped schools for a while with this idea of family partnerships, family engagement. And I always hear, you know, we can't find the families. They can't make the time. They can't be here. And I, I would encourage folks to really try to think creatively um, 
and think of families. I think as soon as we were maybe to think of families as colleagues, all of a sudden the door mm. opens up differently. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I support schools in different states, and I don't always leave. I'm often in Chicago, and I'm supporting people in New York. How do I do that? How do I make their meeting? They allow me to conference call in. But oh, there's so many we, ways to virtually connect these but days. But do you know how rare it is that we allow families on a team to just call in? Mm. We expect them to leave work, drive or take a bus to the school, to walk in, to be in the meeting. And that's, I'm talking about school-wide teams, school-wide decision-making teams like a school's Tier 1 PBIS team, or tier two systems team. And so if we would allow a colleague or a professional to call in or to use Adobe to join the meeting, why wouldn't we offer that to families? And then similarly, if it's my child's meeting, then shouldn't I also be afforded that opportunity to call in to the meeting? Um, so I, it happens to be, so I've been doing this work around PBIS uh, for about 20 years. I started, like I said, even when I was going to school, I was doing some work with community-based positive behavior supports. Um, So about 20 years or so, and then eight years ago, I had um, my first and only child, and uh, then it turns out that my child uh, received the diagnosis of autism. And so I have this unique opportunity to practice positive behavior supports (laughs) 24-7, truly, And to be the family member now in my own child's meetings, right? right? right. But I had all these, you know, my work today is influenced by my experience as a parent, but I I always want to be clear for folks that I was driven around this topic long before I had my own, because I think sometimes we get into this area of advocacy, and and unfortunately, sometimes some people have taken a, a negative connotation to that. But I bring this up because... As a school psychologist, as a school counselor, as someone who works in the area of school improvement, I'm nervous when I go to my son's mm-hmm. IEP meetings. Mm-hmm. And we have great relationships with my son's schools over the years. Uh, we work hard to have great relationships with my son's teachers over the years. And um, still, my husband and I are quite nervous sitting in those meetings. And there's been several times where I had to ask because I'm in Kansas instead of Chicago or, you know, can I call into the meeting? And you can tell that it is not the norm. So I've usually my request has been granted. Um, but I don't know that all families would think of that. Right. And right. so and we as think the school, that it's even an option. Yes. Yeah. We as the school need to think about treating families in the same way we would treat any other decision maker. What, what about more flexible scheduling for those meetings? I mean, are you seeing that happening? I mean, meetings happening really early in the morning or later in the day to accommodate families' right. schedules? Um, it, ha- it does some places, for sure. Yeah. And other places really struggle with that. Yeah. And that's where I would also say that You can be a member of a team without even being present on the phone either. How about being the person who gets notes sent to you and then you can send back your comments, thoughts, feedback? How about recording meetings and then sharing it with folks who can then call in and give their two cents at a time that's more appropriate? So I think everything we can do to be creative in getting voice Mm -hmm. and ownership, Mm -hmm. uh, we want want a democracy. We want an, an informed 
set of people who can help make informed good choices. And so that might mean uh, going a little bit beyond the, the idea of when the school day starts and ends and um, doing what works for teachers and school staff um, that maybe doesn't work for getting this larger group of stakeholders involved. Um, and we want it to work for everyone. We don't want it to be um, to be harder for the school staff either. But usually we can come up with some solutions that work for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to get back to this idea of inviting families into the process. Um, are you seeing... You know, okay, a school makes a commitment to increase their family engagement. What does that look like in terms of outreach? Do they include it in the minutes? Do they put a, a you know request in the newspaper? Does the principal then like or you know invite her, right contact families personally? Right. You know, are there any sort of concrete sure. strategies that a school could use or that sure. you've seen them use to to really open those doors for? Yeah. For all families to feel welcome, yeah, so, especially families of who are you know come from very diverse backgrounds, from maybe the absolutely. the predominant culture in a school. Absolutely. So, I I like to give efficient suggestions yeah. so that they they work for everyone. We care about all adults and all children, so we care about the mental health and wellness of the teachers and the principal, as well as the parents and the students. And so I would ask anyone listening right now who works in a school, especially if you're a dean or a principal or a teacher, if you've ever had to call home and say, I'm calling to let you know that your child made a bad choice today, and because of the bad choice your child made, we either need to give them detention or suspension or whatever action. Imagine following up that conversation by saying, and we really want to do better next time. We realize that your child did not respond to what we tried to do. Your child did not respond to our intervention. Would you be willing to come in and talk to us about how you think we could do better as a school? We have this positive behavior support universal team, and we really need some parents on that team of children who we are not being as successful with as we would like to be. You know, so it doesn't have to be this mm-hmm. totally separate set of activities. Mm-hmm. It can just be blended into what we're doing. And it's about all taking ownership. I'm okay with the idea that families have ownership around their child's behavior in some regard. And we also have ownership as those who work in the school on that behavior. And that's the whole concept of response to intervention, right? That what we did did not work, and we need to look at the response and do something different or do something more. So I look forward to a time when we can blend that into more of our conversations with families Mm -hmm. and kind of saying, you know, we're all sorry that your child did not respond to the intervention we tried. So we're going to try again tomorrow. Please send them back tomorrow. Um, and let us know anything you think we could do differently or better. So we often hear from families who are working really hard to promote inclusion for their daughter or their son Mm -hmm. with a disability in a school district uh, where the school district might operate within a model of separate education for students with disabilities. What advice do you have for these families? Sure. So um, first, I'm sorry Um, I'm really sorry for those listening who are going through that because 
it's unfortunate that it's so hard sometimes. It's unfortunate that we live in a world right now where uh, folks feel like they have to battle against one another when these are the very people who should be sort of on our team working together. I'm also sorry for the school personnel who don't feel like they are competent or capable enough to keep these kids because they are and they can. And I think we will get to a time and a place where all school staff realize that they are able to successfully support all youth. And so I think compassion goes a long way for families to try to find some compassion for those school staff who may not be saying it with their words, but their actions are saying, we don't feel competent Mm -hmm. in supporting a child who's as unique as your child is. Um, and for the school to have great compassion for families who clearly just want their children to be part of a community, a community where they can um, have many of the same experiences as all the other, as we did growing up and as, you know, as other people have for their children. So if we start there with a place of compassion and a place of knowing that we basically all want the same thing, right? Um, then I would say a couple quick things to those family members. So one Um, you can be a teacher by profession, but we can all be teachers by function. So don't underestimate your own ability to teach or inform your school leaders. If they are not using positive behavior supports or MTSS, send them information, find it and bring it to them and help to inform them on how they could support your child in a more inclusive setting. Um, bring them material from the swiftschools.org, you know, um, bring them, um, send them to the APBS.org website, which is the Association of Positive Behavior Supports, which are working really hard to put up material both to inform and educate families and inform and educate schools and service providers. And then we can all, you know, we can access this from wherever we are and kind of share the information with others. So for family members, um, find the information and bring it to the teacher, bring it to the paraprofessional, bring it to the teacher assistant, the principal, the superintendent. Um, Consider your work and your effort in that way, not just as potentially benefiting your child, but also potentially benefiting the children that come after your child. So I hope that your child gets to benefit from that work, but even if they don't, we hope that the children coming after do. So one thing is to try to help educate your school system. Um, Another thing for families to consider is to ask to join a decision-making team, like a PBIS tier one team or a tier two team. Um, Schools are often saying that they can't find families to join these teams. So let your school know that you don't only care about your child, you care about the school community at large and you want to be um, part of the solution in helping this school to improve their supports for all, some, and few. So I know that that doesn't solve the problem for any one family with their one child, but I do think that the solution for all of us lies in systems change. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the more parents that come together to work on systems change, um, the more families and parents that will ultimately um, benefit we need to build that momentum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you, Kimberly. This has just been an 
awesome experience having this conversation with you. And uh, I've learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners have too. And if you want to hear more about equity-based inclusive education, be sure to listen to more of our SWIFT podcasts, which are downloadable on iTunes. And be sure to check out swiftschools.org, where you will find fantastic resources to assist you with inclusive equity-based education and school-wide transformation. In fact, we have a, um, a whole section of our website devoted toward family and community yes. engagement, which we're consistently trying to um, expand that section. So again, Kimberly, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. SWIFT is a national K-8 center that provides academic and behavioral support to promote the learning and academic achievement of all students, including students with disabilities and those with the most extensive needs. Thank you very much for listening.